excited today that we're going to continue and, and close out our Blockbuster series. And we are closing it out today with one of the most iconic, classic movies of the 80s from 1987, The Princess Bride. Okay, The Princess Bride. Um, now, this is one of those movies that I'll tell you it did fine in theaters. It wasn't this blockbuster movie there, but something happened after it came out on VHS. And if you were with us, you know VHS are those big cassettes. And if you don't know what cassette is, uh, you're, you're lost. I don't know what to do with you. Um, but this became a cult classic movie. And, you know, the amount of quotable lines in this movie, it's inconceivable. Uh, ju just curious, how many of you have seen this movie? Okay. How many of you have not seen this movie before? Proudly? Okay. That, to me, is inconceivable. I don't understand how that could be. Maybe, you know what? Maybe that's not the right word to keep using. Um, but you know what I mean, right? Now, The Princess Bride, let me tell you, this is like the ultimate of meta movies, all right? Um, this is a movie uh, about a book that was written in 1973 called The Princess Bride. And the book itself is about a grandfather who visits his sick grandson and reads him a book. So it's a book about a book. And what we have is then a movie that's about a book that's about a book, but the grandfather's reading about a book. It's like, it, it's, it, it contains so many books in this movie. So if you have seen the movie this year, put it on your Goodreads as I read a book. Okay, it counts. I'm going to give you the privilege to make this count. Um, but this is a book about a book about a movie about a book. And, you know, it, it's, it's a great story. But simply put, this story is about a, a, a woman named Buttercup. And you have to name a woman Buttercup, I guess, in an 80s movie. But she falls in love with this lowly farm boy. What's his name? Wesley, very good. Uh, Wesley loves her, we know that. And instead of just marrying her because he loves her, which would be the right thing to do, he does, but it would be a short book. Um, he does the, the thing that we need for an adventure. He goes off to find his you know, money to make sure he could throw her a great wedding. And as he's out there, there is something that goes wrong. His ship is attacked by the dread pirate Roberts. And, uh, you know, the pirate in black. So I figured we'd go with that today. And the Dread Pirate Roberts never leaves any survivors. Buttercup goes into this deep depression for a couple years. And five years later, what we find is Buttercup is now engaged to Prince Humperdinck. Just say Humperdinck with me. Humperdinck. It's a Humperdinck, 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 right? It, this is, let me tell you, he is exactly like his name sounds. He's a Humperdinck, all right? Um... And before they can get married, there's this small group of outlaws who kidnap Princess Buttercup while she's out doing the one thing she enjoys, and that's riding her horse. So the kidnappers are awesome. They're way cooler than Humperdinck. Here's our trio of kidnappers right here. There is um, a giant. His name is Fezzik. And Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, Amazing, amazing. They were going to put Arnold Schwarzenegger there? No, Andre was the right one. We've got the Spanish fencer. His name is Inigo Montoya. Okay, and you know that name that's familiar. You probably quote that line. And the leader is this little guy at the bottom, and that's Vicini. Vicini is this small uh, Sicilian man. He claims to be smarter than Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. They're all idiots compared to him. And he is the brains of this operation. 
So after they kidnap Buttercup, what happens is they plan to lay low until a war starts between these two neighboring uh, countries, and then they're gonna kill Buttercup to make sure that the war goes on, because they're in a war-making business. So what they did not expect was that the Dread Pirate Roberts would be pursuing them. So they had a plan, and their plan was disrupted by the man in black. And what we're gonna look at, instead of one clip like we've looked at for each of our movies, is actually Vicini's response to each time the man in black does something surprising. And so would you just watch this clip with me as the Dread Pirate Roberts pursues them? Why are you doing that? Are you sure nobody's follow us? That would be inconceivable. Despite what you think, you will be caught. And when you are, the prince will see you all hanged. You're sure nobody's follow us? As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. No one in Gilder knows what we've done. And no one in Florin could have gotten here so fast. He's climbing the rope. And he's getting on us. Inconceivable. Faster! I thought I was going faster. You got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable! Give her to me. Catch up with us quickly! What do I do? Finish him. Finish him! Your way! Oh, good. My way. Thank you, Vincini. Which was my way? <laughs> now, I, I love this because Vicini is supposed to be the brains of this trio, right? And he keeps using the same word over and over to describe what he's seeing. What's the word? Oh, you got to say it like Vicini. Come on. There it is, right? Now, now, whether the boat's gaining on them, whether the man's climbing in pursuit of them, or uh, he had just won a fencing match against the best fencer, all of these things are inconceivable, right? The word inconceivable, just so on the same page, means not capable of being imagined or grasped mentally. Unbelievable. Each of these situations that they find themselves in is a stretch, but they weren't really inconceivable, right? I mean, which is why I love Inigo's response to Vicini when he simply says, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? That is such a great quote. This is a line that I will tell you I quote weekly in my home, in my life. I, I quote it to myself about things that I say. I quote it to other people about things that they say. And, and let me tell you, we live in a world where I think people are constantly saying things, but they have no idea what it means. Really, it happens all the time. Or they use a phrase or a word with the expectation that you agree with the definition that they agree to, but you don't. How many of you wish that you could just hit a button and have Inigo Montoya's voice just come and say that to stop people from talking sometimes? Be honest. Yes, uh, a handful of us are there, right? I wish that I had this button to say, oh my gosh, stop, stop. What you're saying, I don't think it means what you think it means. And what I love about this and it, what intrigues me is how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says something so similar 
to what an ego says. But he says it to followers, um, all, an entire Jewish community of people who are listening to him about his teachings. And, and he says, you know what? When he says this, he probably says it in Hebrew, not with a Spanish accent. So you got to get an ego's voice out of Jesus's you know, personality here. And, and when we read this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we just heard, you cannot read that like an ego Montoya, right? But this crowd needed to hear from Jesus this same thing that an ego said. You keep saying these things, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And, and I believe that today, we need to hear that just as much as the crowd that Jesus was talking to because too many followers of Jesus say things that we do not completely understand but we are convinced that they're true and convinced, even worse, that many are found in the Bible. I often imagine Jesus saying, you keep on saying these things, but they just don't mean what you think they mean. Thankfully, when he says this to this crowd, he doesn't just leave them saying, great, define it for yourself. He actually redefines what it really means. And I love that he loves us enough to correct us, to point us in a healthy direction of using our words wisely. So I would love to look at this together um, and how he did this in the biography of Jesus that's written by uh, one of his great friends, Matthew. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll have it on the screen in a little bit. And it's the exact passage that Christiana read for us from uh, Matthew. And in Matthew, what's great is you're going to find this is a portion of scripture we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And this is a portion where Jesus has gathered followers and people who are coming to him, and they've all sat to listen to what he says. Matthew, as he's writing, we have to know that he is writing to a specifically Jewish audience. That's who this whole biography is written with them in mind that they would understand. So there's an understanding if we're reading this biography, and let's pretend that we're the listeners of Jesus, that we would have a very clear understanding of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we would say, okay, let's pretend for a second that we all know it really well, okay? So even if you don't know it now, we could pretend we all know this, right? We're good at pretending. And so we have this, and in the Jewish culture, they had a very clear structure with how worship worked and how the temple was supposed to be run. And there was this unbelievably high respect for the priests, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These were their leaders that they were like, they are just way high and above. They don't really mess up. And so right before the passage that was read for us, Jesus says this to the gathered crowd in Matthew chapter five, verse 20. He says, but, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers, the religious law, and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus just set up for this audience, uh, this moment to say, I need you for a second to compare yourself to the Pharisees, to the keepers, the teachers of the law. I would tell you, automatically, if we're sitting there in that moment, we're all going to do the same thing. We're going to think, I could never be as righteous as they are. They're the teachers. They're, the, they're, the, they're like the, the paid professionals here I could never match the behavior that they have. They're so holy. They're so different. And, and I'll never understand the law that they have. And one of the purposes of the law, this Old Testament that we're working off of, is a specifically the first five books of the Bible that he's talking about now is to reveal how sinful that we are, that, that, that things are off in our life and we need God. 
And so the Old Testament law and all the prophets, they dealt primarily with all the things that we do, our outward actions. And each time Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard. Like you see, starting in verse 22, you have heard. It's going to be a direct quote from the law, from the Old Testament scriptures, this law of Moses. And we, as listeners who are Jewish, would have completely understood and knew exactly what he was talking about, right? This wouldn't be a shocker what he was saying to us. But six times in this little section that we've got here, he brings us from the law and then he brings us back to like, I know you think you know this and you understand this. And then he uses a new phrase. And the new phrase is, phrase is, but I tell you. But I tell you. Here's the difference between what you think you know and I'm going to tell you something new. Now, when I'm feeling adventurous and, and I'm writing and I'm studying, I like to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and I, and I just enjoy that. And sometimes uh, I get really excited because... There's certain things that like trigger in my brain, and it's just fun to, to do that. And I know you're probably thinking that's a little weird, but um, this is one of those passages that I have fun with in the Greek, and here's why. Uh, I'm going to teach you some Greek today, okay? We're going to have a little bit of fun. You, you cool with this? Okay, we're going to have a little bit of fun, and I know you're thinking like, what? Fun learning Greek? As I studied this, this is going to give you insight into how scattered your pastor's brain is for a second, okay? All right, so... Um, Welcome to my brain. What helped me understand this passage and remember some of the Greek was a commercial from the 1980s. I kid you not. Um, do you remember the Eggo Waffle commercials? Those old Eggo Waffle commercials. If you're under 30, let me show you the awesomeness of 1989. Hey, Lego my Eggo. Lego my Eggo, Jessica. Light golden Eggo Waffles taste so good. It's not always easy to get your hands on one, so sometimes you have to improvise. Lego my Ego, please. Ego Waffles, from Kellogg's. <laughs> I don't know how that box didn't catch on fire, but it doesn't matter. Um, she put a... It, What's the phrase that they use? Lego my ego. They use that catchphrase for years, for years. The phrase that Jesus uses here, and again, I'm telling you this because I hope it helps you remember the phrase. The phrase, but I tell you, that he says, but I tell you, in the Greek is ego de lego su, okay? Ego de lego su. Try it with me. Ego de lego su, right? Lego my ego, right? What? no. Ego de Lego Su. And, and I want you to know this phrase because as we go through this passage, I'm going to use this phrase because it makes me think of waffles, and I like that. And so uh, I just think it's great. So you ready to dive in? All right, Lego. Uh, let's go. Um, you know, in verse 21, Jesus is going to start. He's going to start with this idea of have you heard? And have you heard? And I know that you've heard. And he connects it to anger. And he says, you know what? You've got some issues here, and he connects anger to murder. This would have been a simple, for, simple one for them to understand. If you murder someone, this is wrong. They know this from the Ten Commandments, right? That's in Exodus 20. Don't murder. Everyone's on the same page? Something familiar? And they're all like, all right, cool. I like this teaching. You've heard. Don't murder. I am down. And Jesus then says, ego de lego su. Right? 
You've heard don't murder, but, but I tell you. And Jesus turns from outward behavior to inward questioning. But I tell you. Ego de legosu, if you're angry, this is murder. What, what do you mean? And he clarifies it a little bit down. He says, if you call someone an idiot, or maybe some of your translations use the word raka. Um, raka, it, it's a very general term that you would use if you were frustrated. Uh, imagine for a second you're in the right lane of 295 and you're trying to get off at exit 10, uh, Center Square Road, and it's about rush hour. You know the feeling right now? All right, let's pretend you do the right thing and you stay with the flow of traffic and move over while it's a half a mile of traffic to get off on that exit. What is the word that goes through your head when someone flies down the shoulder? You don't need to say it out loud. <laughs> what do you think about the person who decides they're going to go in the left lane and then, oh, I do need to get off on this exit, and right before, <laughs> shoots in? Do you have that feeling? Do you have that word, those words, those phrases in your mind? Great. If it's generally along the lines of, you idiot, we're going to keep that calm. Jesus says, if that's the case, you should be put in front of the courts. That, that when we direct this anger, this raka, this you idiot, and it is pointed at someone, there is a bigger issue at hand because it's completely tearing down someone else who has been made in the image of God, who is created to look like him, who is an image bearer of God, and whether they're acting like it or not doesn't matter when we use those words against them, we're devaluing them. This is court-worthy and murder, according to Jesus. This is a heart issue we can all hold our tongue, but we still feel and say those things in our mind, right? So it's like, well, at least I didn't say it. Jesus said it doesn't matter. You've heard it was said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, when you use these words, you think these things, now this is murder. I imagine if we were sitting there listening to Jesus in this moment, we'd be like, yeah, murder. Anger is murder. What? Our eyes, our eyebrows would furrow, our, our noses would squinch, and we'd be like, I don't know what you're saying. Jesus, don't you, don't you get it? Sometimes people are idiots. Sometimes that is true. Don't you know how they treat me sometimes? They deserve that. But Jesus says they don't. I know that you've heard it said. I know that you think you know what don't murder means. You keep on using this phrase, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Here's what it means. And he begins to turn it to the heart to address anger. I think we often know what the Bible says about anger, but I simply want to leave you with this before he jumps into the next topic. And for those who struggle with anger, I, I know what you've heard. Ego de lego su. Follow what Jesus says here and examine your heart. Jesus continues in this passage, verse 27, verse 31, and, and he uses that phrase you have heard. But this time, he starts addressing a different internal struggle, and that simply is lust. Now, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, and if you divorce someone, do it right. That's going to be found in Exodus 20. It's, it's, again, one of the Ten Commandments here, and this is something the crowd listening would have went, yeah, okay, I'm down, I get it. We're all on the same page. Don't cheat on your spouse. Check. Ego de lego su, Jesus says. 
But I tell you, if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Jesus calls out sin here in a very real way, and he does get very specific. Sometimes I think we like to sanitize the Bible and make it clean, but it's not. It's very raw, and in this context, Jesus has clearly said, I know that you think this is external behavior stuff, but it's not. What we do externally affects us internally, and in that passage, which is, I get it, this is tough to talk about sometimes, but I got to tell you, for our culture, the behavior that he's saying here to look at someone lustfully is completely celebrated by our, the culture that we live in. That it's, it's totally okay. You could look but not touch. And Jesus clearly addresses and says, there's two issues at hand here that I want you to pay attention to that will reveal the internal. This isn't just about if you cheat on your spouse or partner. This here, he's saying, what you do with your eyes, what we are looking at and how we look at it matters. It does. And then he talks about our hands. He talks about what they do, where they go. Isn't it amazing how what we see can impact what we do with our hands? How we handle ourselves and the sexual integrity that God has given us, this part of our humanity. So often we think what I'm looking doesn't really matter that much. And if it's just me, it's impacting. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is a big deal. From a scriptural standpoint, from what Jesus says, this is not good. And so what Jesus does is he says it goes after our heart. Because if our you know, outward behavior is simply because of inward stuff going on, just like he addressed anger, he's like, listen, your behavior on the outside is revealing what's really going on in your heart. So you could say, oh, I haven't cheated on my wife. Yeah, but come on, what are you doing here? What are you doing with your eyes and with your hands? This is one of those areas that I'm telling you, we have to guard so carefully. What are we seeing? What are we touching? How are we touching? And what, how are we using our eyes and thinking about people? Because the reality is it affects every relationship that we have around us. Especially for those of us who are married at this moment, let me tell you, our behavior is what we look at and how we handle that affects our spouse more than you would ever realize. For those who struggle with lust, I simply want to say, I know what you've heard. Ego de lego su. Follow what Jesus says here and check your heart. And for those of you who are single and you are here, I just want to say that, that what a beautiful gift God has given you in your sexuality and the pressure to feel like, oh, you got to be married to do this. You gotta... Listen, there's so much integrity and wholesomeness that could be gained in a dedication to God and your sexuality that please don't dismiss this as like, oh, it's a married person thing and they'll just deal with it. No, 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 this matters. Whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we are engaged, whether we are divorced, God cares about the, how we handle our lives here. Could you imagine being one of the people listening to Jesus at this moment? Be like, Ugh, I don't like this. I think most preachers would know when your congregation is checking out and you're like, uh, maybe we'll just close this up early, right? Let's do communion and balance. But Jesus doesn't do that. I'm sure everyone's feeling awkward and like, what are you doing, Jesus? But he keeps going, so we will too. He addresses anger, he addresses lust, and he moves on to deception. And 
This is a very quick four verses that he unpacks, and he starts again with, you have heard it said, you have heard. And he talks about keeping your oaths, fulfilling the oaths that you've made to the Lord. Um, if you want to look for this one, you could jump into Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, and they would have known these laws. And Jesus then says, what's our phrase? Oh, nailed it. Ego de lego su. Say it with me again. Ego de lego su. Jesus now says, I know all these things about oaths, but ego de lego su. Just say yes or no. Just say yes and just say no. You see, it wasn't uncommon for someone in that context to take an oath, to make a deal, and then not fulfill it. I know, not so different from today, is it? Right? You would be able to do this because the teachers of the law had this amazing way because they knew the law so well, they could work in and out of it and figure out how to get out of the deals that you made. It's like the, um, the people who could do your taxes to tell you what things you really don't have to pay if you don't want to, but you know you really should be doing it. That's what these teachers could do. You've made an oath, you've made a yes, you've given a no, but you're still going to do it anyway. You can get out of it. So he encourages his listeners. He said, listen, stop swearing on things that you can't control. Stop saying, you know, um, you know you're going to swear on... Should you do this as a kid? Like, are you going to, you know, let's make a deal. Deal. I swear on my, you know, great-grandmother's grave. And you're like, I don't even know who great-grandma is, so she could roll over all she wants. I'm not doing this. Right? Even in the scene that we found where Vecini says, that's inconceivable that he's climbing up the, the cliffs of insanity. There's a moment that Inigo Montoya says, I'm going to throw you down a rope. And he says, I'm not going to believe you. You're a Spaniard. You know? uh, and he says, I swear on the life of my dead father. You know? and, and, and all of a sudden, he says, I believe you. He shouldn't have had to say that. And we come to this problem all the time where we're making deals and we're, we're signing things and saying yes and saying no, but we're making deals that we don't ever plan on following through with. And that's the idea here. And, and this is the thing that Jesus is going after. And he's saying, listen, I, I know you're figuring out how to sign papers and how to make this stuff, but the problem is your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Your life should be one that's lived with such integrity that when you say something, people actually believe you. What type of life do you live that people have to make a, a contract with you? Are you not trustworthy? That's what he's really going after. He's calling us to live a life completely of integrity that people would simply, when we say, I'll be there, we're there. When we say, I'm not doing that, we're not going to do that. I mean, it, it's so simple, isn't it? But let's be real. We all struggle with this. And I, th I think we struggle with this because we, we don't have enough confidence to say no sometimes. Just to be real. We don't have enough confidence. So we say, you know, maybe we'll do that or oh, we'll see. We, we keep on using these phrases, but they do not mean what we think they mean. They mean no. They mean no. But we keep using them. This right here, when we do that, that's being deceptive. That's not being a man or a woman of integrity. And, and I'm confessing to you, I'm guilty of this. When my kids ask me, can we do something? And I'm like, oh, we'll see. And I'm thinking, no way. Why? Because I don't feel like having the fight in that moment to say no. I don't feel like I have the courage to say no in that moment because of what happens. And I just need to tell you, when we do this, we are lying. This 
is deception. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And for those who struggle with deception like I do with phrases like this, I know what you have heard. Ego de lego su. Follow what Jesus tells you. Examine your heart here. What I love about this section of Jesus' teaching is um, this is not directed, and he goes on with a couple of other things after this, but this is not aimed at the Roman world around him. He's not critiquing the culture that they live in, and he right now in this moment is surrounded by fellow Jews, and they claim to lean and to learn the same scriptures together. This is what is directing their lives, so he directly talks to them, and he's not critiquing the world's terms and the world's words. He is kind of taking this in-house. It's with his tribe and his people. I sometimes wonder if Jesus were to walk with us on this earth right now, physically, and he listened to the way that followers of Jesus, people who claim to be his disciples, if he listened to how we speak, if he listened to the words that we use and how we use them, I wonder what it would sound like when he responded to us if he said something like an ego matoya. I mean, would he say, you, you keep on using these words and these phrases, but I don't think they mean what you think they mean. I, I don't think I've ever said anything like that. I don't think that's anywhere in the teachings that I gave you. I honestly think he would say that to us. I do. Because a lot of things that we say as Christians, they, they sound good. Believe me, I, I think they sound really good, but they aren't anywhere found in the Bible or sound like what Jesus says. Now, I understand that when some phrases that we use as followers of Jesus are said, the intention behind it is really good. The intention behind it is a heart for someone, and I don't want to take away from the heart that we have for people, but that doesn't make what we say right. And just like Fasini, he can say, inconceivable with all the conviction of the world, it doesn't make it the right word. And so I just worry that we say things sometimes, and we say it with conviction, we think it's right, but it doesn't make it the right thing. Um, we use phrases, let me give you an example. Here's some, like my top five. I, this one phrase gets me. Have you ever heard a follower of Jesus say, hate the sin, love the sinner? Have you ever heard this phrase? Anybody else use this besides me at some point? All right, yeah, some of you are honest enough. Great, you're not deceptive, great. Um, listen, I, I know this phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner, uh, but I, that doesn't really work, Right? It's not found anywhere in the Bible this way. And when we use a word like sin, can I just tell you that people have a different definition of sin? They do. So you're automatically putting yourself and separating because that word isn't even defined the same. And Paul tells us in Romans 14, I love this, he says, sometimes, and this is, oh, I'm going to say it. Did you know not all sin is sin for everybody? That what causes you to struggle is sin for you, but that may not be a struggle for someone else, so it's not a worry or a sin for them. Romans 14 is like, not all things on the sin level are equal. It is a bit subjective for each person. That's why we have to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. So the moment that we start saying, um, we are going to you know, declare this thing as sin that Jesus has not been clear on, we're going to say, oh, well, you do that, so I'm going to hate what you do, but I love you. And it's like, but this isn't a big deal. We make it an us-them. And, and sin, I would simply say, listen, anything that we do that pulls us away from loving God and loving people, 
loving God and loving what he loves. This is sin. Christians need to stop saying this phrase. We really do because it creates an us-them mentality and it unknowingly communicates that if a person is sinning, we'll love them when they stop doing that behavior, whatever it is, because we've already put them in another category. We've got to stop that. That one's got to go. Uh, how about the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? Heard this one? Do you ever want to throat punch someone when they say it? I know that one. When I hear this, I genuinely wonder if the person who's saying it has ever opened the Bible at all in their life. I know that you're so judgmental, Jimmy. No, no, seriously. Have you ever read this thing? It's filled with nothing but every single character being in a situation where it's always more than they could handle, including Jesus. Does he not sit in the garden saying, God, please, if you take this from me, not my will, but your will be done. That sounds like a desperate prayer of being overwhelmed by a situation, right? Being in a situation where it's more than you can handle. This book is filled and all the time this happens. The Bible does not tell us that, that, that God will not allow us. It tells us that we won't be tempted beyond what we could bear. Right? That's a promise we have, that God will always provide a way out for us, but it never says life won't be too much for you, that God will never give you more than you can handle. No, this happens all the time, all the time to us. And when we say things like this, even if our heart is genuinely in the right place to try to bring comfort to a person who's overwhelmed or they're in that situation, we're trying to bring them hope. Listen, when we use this phrase, it has the potential to shame the person that we're saying it to and they're usually left thinking in that moment, am I not spiritual enough that I don't see what they see? Because this feels like it's too much to handle for me. And they say, I should be at a different place, that, that I should be trusting God. I feel like I am. I'm desperate. When we say this to people who are in deep pain and hurt, even if your heart is right, I don't think it means what we hope it means to them. And if you've been on the receiving end of this, you understand what that means I think this is a phrase we can stop using because it doesn't make any sense, and it's not biblical. How about the phrase, um, the third one that I get is, uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window. I didn't know God was in construction, but I guess he's, he's got all sorts of like house designing going on, and I'm not, I don't even know where to start with some of this. I mean... Is he closing us in our house or in a house? Is he, are we supposed to jump out the window? And if we're jumping out the window, do we shut the window? Are we, is, I mean, why, why is there not a back door? This is a fire hazard. Does he not know code? I mean, if he opened a window, isn't it, isn't it harder than using the door to get out the window? And, and what, if the, like, what if the window, it's like a town home and it's so close, are you jumping into someone's house? Are you in the wrong house? There's so many things about this that I don't understand. I just don't get it. I, I know the intention is that when we say things like this, that God's always providing a way out of our situations, that, that there's always a way. But again, this just isn't true. This just isn't true. Sometimes God's totally cool with us not having options. He's totally cool with us sitting in pain, sitting in suffering. We learned on Wednesday night that sometimes he uses suffering as something that refines us and defines us. It's okay to be in the house with the doors closed and the windows closed. He's not always opening things, and he's not asking us to force things open or to beg them to open. Slow down life. There doesn't always have to be an out. He's totally cool with this. 
Or he's cool if we open the door and we say, thanks for shutting it. I'm going to open it anyway and go through. Right? God can redeem all of these things, but we keep on saying this. I don't know what it means. I think we could stop saying this one. I don't think it means what we think it means. The phrase that we get, I'll pray about it. I know you're thinking, no, Jimmy, that's biblical. Like, I like that one. That's good. I know. I get it. This one, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about things. I I think we absolutely should be praying. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for people or about situations, but we need to stop using this phrase to to wiggle out of situations we don't want to get and be a part of. Right? This is one that we use. I'll confess, I have used this phrase with no intention of ever praying about something. Um, I just wanted to people, I wanted people to think I prayed about it, but in reality, I was going to go with the most logical choice anyway. Like, there was something that I really didn't feel like I need to pray about. God had given great wisdom, great counsel. It's clear this is what we're going to do. Oh, we should really pray about this. All right, maybe I'm missing something, but this is what we're going to do. Do you ever, you know what I'm saying? We say we're going to pray about things, but we have the intention of we know what we're going to do anyway. I have been deeply convicted by this. Um, and when I hear it now, because I'm grateful for you know, men who have asked me this question, women who have pushed back on me, they say, when I, when I say I'm going to pray about it, they ask me the question, well, how are you going to pray? And now I've started to translate that question to when people say to me, hey, you know what? I'll pray about that. That's the we'll see that we give to our kids that means no. That's the Christian we'll see. I'll pray about it. No. When someone says I'm going to pray about that, I, gr- I ask, great, how long do you need? What's your time of prayer look like? Do you want to pray now together through this? Oh, no, 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 no. Why? Uh, you know, I'll just pray with it on my own, in my head. Huh. You just want to say no. Just have the courage to say no. It's okay. But we become deceptive with, I'll pray about it. If we use this phrase, I just beg you, let it mean what it really means. Spend some time praying through this. The last one that gets me is... Uh, Jesus is in my heart. And this may rub some people here the wrong way, and I I understand, but I need to tell you, we just sang about it together and worshiped Jesus. And where is Jesus right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Acts has told us that he ascended into heaven and he will return. He is not in your heart. That is nowhere in all of the Bible is there a specific prayer that says, if you pray these magic words, Jesus comes into your heart and saves you. Nowhere. What we read is if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that that God raised him from the dead and you confess this with your mouth, you're saved. And Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's why I'm leaving because I'm going to send you what? The Holy Spirit. And when we pray, we don't pray to receive Jesus. We pray to follow Jesus, and we receive the Holy Spirit. He's who lives in us. And when we start to say we've got Jesus in our heart, we're completely diminishing the power, the presence, the the anointing, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. He is so important into our lives. I'm not sure because that phrase, Jesus in our hearts, wasn't even around 100 years ago. But it's become so commonplace for us. And I understand it's easier probably to teach our kids that Jesus comes into our heart rather than saying the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. What's that mean? Uh, Well, uh, 
why don't we just learn how to explain things to our kids instead of being scared and trying to do it in like haphazard, non-biblical ways? We can do this. We can. And when we don't have an answer for something, you know what the best answer is? Oh, that's Pastor Will. Right? Just go with it. And, and he's not here. He doesn't know. He's riding some Hogwarts ride right now. Just go ask Pastor Will. Text him now. Th- th- that's, you know, this is what we need to do. We know that Jesus Christ is raised. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's our coming king who's coming back. He's not in our heart because if he explodes from our hearts, we die when he comes back. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us. He gives us gifts so that we can bless each other. He allows us to understand scripture because he's inspired it. He gives us wisdom beyond what we could handle because he is God. We need to stop Jesus in our hearting things. It doesn't make sense. It's not in the Bible. And I know you could probably look at Revelation saying he stands at the door and knocks and maybe you want to go there. But the reality is that's written to people who are already followers of Jesus who have basically said, we don't really want to hang out with you, so go outside. We're going to shut the door on you. Go, go find a window. Um, there's so many more. We use phrases that I believe as Christians, we're running around like Vicini all the time saying, it's inconceivable. I mean, we, I'm blessed, and blessed meaning I've got money. My family is, is good and healthy. And then we look at the rest of the world and be like, well, if they knew Jesus, they'd be blessed because they're poor. And, they're the, and it's like, blessed is the wrong word. We're not blessed because we have things or, or, you know, I guess we just throw the towel in, right? Or we wave the white, white flag and say, if it didn't go my way, I guess it's just God's will. I'm sorry. Th- th- how do you know that? Sometimes he's asking us to push through things. Like, you don't get to just throw it in and say it's not. Th- we have phrases we use all the time. I just wonder what it would look like if we listened to ourselves and the words that we use because here's the truth. There are people like Inigo Montoya all around us listening to Christians and wondering, what in the world are you talking about? The gospel of Jesus was so clear and so simple in the first century that a Roman, a Jew, a Greek could all understand it. People in India, people in Asia, they all understood it. It's not hard but I fear we've complicated it. What would it look like if we knew the words that we were using? And when we don't know, let's stop fronting and pretending we do and just say, I don't know. Text Pastor Well. We get to do this together. And so I would love for you, if you hear me say things, Jimmy, that doesn't feel right. Call me on it. I would welcome that. Because my neighbors, my friends, anybody that I'm with, if I cannot explain the story of Jesus in a way that they would understand, do I really understand it? We shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we are. But humble ourselves to be all things to all people for the sake of Christ and use a language that people understand and stop over-spiritualizing and recognizing that Jesus is in all things with us. But let's use the right words. Amen? We do this together as we celebrate communion as well. And so if you have communion, um, I would love for you to take it out. If you did not get communion as you were walking in, uh, Jeremy has a bin right here. You just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get get it. Communion is one of those things I think we can misunderstand a lot of times. 
that we sit in a place and we say, oh, we're going to do communion, and it becomes routine. It becomes rote, and we're like, oh, yeah, the cup, the bread, and whatever, it's done. When the truth is, Jesus has defined what this is. And Paul has told us also clearly, he says, if, if someone among you does not follow Jesus, please, please do not take communion. It is a curse. And so I would encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're like, oh, well, everybody else is doing it. You don't have to do this if you have not dedicated your life to following Jesus and his teachings. Um, if the Holy Spirit is not in your heart, that, do not feel the pressure to do this because it's actually a curse is what scripture says. But communion is one of those things that Jesus says, do this every time you come together. Every time you come together, celebrate communion. And he doesn't say it because he wants us to have a snack. He says it because his death and resurrection is the very center of our entire life. And that we sit in a place together to say, we genuinely believe that in celebrating communion, this is the body and the blood of Christ that tells his story again. And that we declare it in the presence of each other and even when there are people who don't know who Jesus is, and uh, maybe that's another word. Can we just stop using the word unbelievers? Um, they believe, people who don't follow Jesus believe in something. They all believe in something. They just don't believe in what you believe in. So they're not believing what you, does that make sense? They're just people who don't follow Jesus. We choose to follow Jesus. So this is our call to come together and to celebrate and remember Jesus in all the times that we are together. And so this morning, if you've dedicated your life to Jesus, we come before him and we just remember his body, we remember his blood. We remember his sacrifice for us. And we remember his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that even a child could understand this story and place their trust in him. He didn't make this complicated, amen? Today, we celebrate the simplicity of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. As we eat and we drink together, we honor you above all else. We remember that you sit at the right hand of the, of the Father, that you are before all, in all, and will always be, that you are coming to return to this world, to restore it, to redeem it. Until then, thank you for giving us the call to follow in your footsteps, to obey your teachings, regardless of what we've heard pastors say or preachers say or teachers say. We want to lead on what you say. You tell us to remember you, and so we follow your commandment this morning. Let's eat and drink together. May the Lord bless you this week with the ability to hear yourself. Would the Holy Spirit open your ears to hear the voice of Jesus, to hear your voice, to celebrate where they line up and to simplify where they don't. Not for your benefit, but for the benefit of those around you that they would know the love of God through the way that you speak. In Jesus' name, amen.